0: Good to see all of you this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, If you are one of our guests, we are especially glad you're here and that uh, we hope that you will stick around after services. Let us get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. And we continue our study through the book of Philippians. As uh, we examine what appears to be the theme of the book of Philippians, Paul really highlights joy, and specifically how God empowers us to rejoice in Christ Jesus. We come to chapter 2 this morning. I want us to read verses 1 through 16. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 16. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you Father God, help us to see clearly Jesus as He is revealed in these verses. And help us to see how we have been given the humble mind of Christ. And allow us to see what that means for us as we live life before you and with one another. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Luxor is a city in Egypt, Upper Egypt specifically, where the ancient ruins of Thebes can be visited. Thebes was at one point the capital of Egypt. It was home of the great temple that was erected by Amenophis III. The temple had a number of tall columns. It was an impressive structure. During a tour of the ruins, a tourist happened to notice that at the top of one of these columns, there was a small house. Curious as to how it got there, the tourist inquired of the guide, and the guide explained that before excavations began at Luxor, the area was covered with sand. One local farmer tried to find bedrock for his house that he was building. And scratching through the sand, he came upon a smooth surface. And so he built his house upon that surface. The thing about a, a permanent structure in the desert is that it will cause the sand to sift away from it. And that's what happened with this particular cottage. As the sand drifted away from the cottage the farmer discovered that his house was actually built on a hand-carved piece of stone. It was only after excavations began that the farmer realized that the stone was one of these standing columns. And after the excavations were complete, he found that his home was nearly 80 feet, 80 feet above ground level. And as I reflect on this account, this is not unlike many people's understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. They they claim that their lives are built on Jesus Christ, but they know very little about Jesus. They know about as little about the Lord Jesus as this farmer knew about the foundation of his home. Many people will admit that Christ existed They will acknowledge His example. They'll even speak of His great moral teaching. And all these things are true. And yet if that is all that is recognized or acknowledged about Christ, then that person is just as misled as this Egyptian farmer was who believed that he was building his house on bedrock. If all a person says about Jesus If all you say about Jesus is that he existed, or that he was a good person, or that he was a wise teacher, then your understanding of the person and nature of Jesus, the the true person and nature of Jesus, is inadequate. A shallow understanding of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, that will affect how you live in this world it will affect how you interact with other Christians or not and it will even affect whether or not you complain about things you see at the heart of Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 did you notice verses 5 through 11 at the heart of this text is a lofty view a high view of the Lord Jesus Christ And it is sandwiched between instruction about humbly serving others, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and living a holy life. Sandwiched between all of this is this early Christian hymn that is exalting Christ. A song that they would have sang in worship. And it reveals a very deep and profound truth about Jesus Christ. You know, someone may read these verses, verses 1 through 4, verses 12 and following, and they may ask, why why should I be of the same mind as my brothers and sisters? Or even, what is that same mind that I ought to have? Why should I be of the same love? Why should I count others more significant than myself? Why should I look to the interests of others? They may ask, why should I work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Why should I seek to live a holy life in a crooked world? Why should I seek to be a shining light in this world? And the answer to each of these questions, one and all, is Jesus. Jesus is the reason of reasons. Jesus is the argument of arguments. It is because of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would do any of this. And so, Paul, to illustrate the point, that's what's interesting about this. It's an illustration of the larger teaching he has here. He inserts what many believe is an early Christian hymn, an early Christian song from their songbook. And it's a vivid illustration of everything that Paul is writing. And it boils down to this, that God in Christ provides His people with a humble mind, even the mind of Christ. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want to unpack specifically verses 5 through 11. And then we'll turn around and we'll see how this is applied to everything that Paul has been writing thus far. Unity. Unity. Fellowship, that's what's at the beginning of verse 1 here. If there's any participation in the Spirit, the word there for participation, it's a word that is often translated fellowship. This one mind, the same love, same mind, all of this that that Paul has been talking about, it is rooted in having the mind of Christ. Notice verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, literally, keep on thinking this. And he's talking about this one mind. Keep on thinking. The calling to think like Christ. That's the emphasis here. That's the imperative. But it will enable Christians to do what Paul is instructing them to do. Humbly serve one another. Serve one another in humility. And so Paul presents, again, this exalted view of Christ And it begins in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God. Literally, who is existing in the form of God. Now, it's interesting the way that this is phrased, isn't it? The form of God. Paul, this, this hymn, it could have read that he was God. Right? And yet, what this early Christian hymn does is it wants to emphasize the distinction between the Father and the Son. In fact, how do we end in verse 11? It's to the glory of God the Father. And so, fearing that someone might conflate the Father and the Son, and then you end up with heresy, this early Christian hymn is written very carefully. And so, Jesus is in... The form. He is in the form of God. And the idea here of form has to do with the essential attributes and the essential nature and character of a thing. And in this case, it is of God. It is the very form of God. And Christ was in that form. And in fact, He is. He continues to maintain the essential attributes nature and character of god it is a very careful way of drawing the distinction within the godhead while also affirming definitively that christ jesus is the possessor of all of the essential attributes and nature and character of god he is fully god I'm telling you these early christians were smart smart christians right They understood the need for doctrinal clarity, especially as it pertained to the Godhead. And so, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is eternally in the form of God, and yet he didn't regard that equality as something to be so prized tenaciously That he wouldn't empty himself, because that's where we're heading here into verse 7, yes? In order to accomplish the divine will and intention in time and space. He didn't see it as something to be grasped onto desperately, lest he lose it. And if we understand the, the larger narrative of Scripture, it reaches all the way back to the first Adam you know that Christ is often compared to the first Adam, and He's the second Adam. The first Adam, what was the temptation again? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Or it could be said, you will play at God, defining good and evil, and that continues to be the temptation that people succumb to even today. You will be like God. And so the first Adam thought about equality with God as something to be grasp that grasp that desperately and i gotta get it not the second adam the second adam he recognized that the pathway of lowly obedience was the pathway to being highly exalted and so he does in verse 7 empty himself he emptied himself your translation may say he made himself nothing that's that's all right but it does have to do with the idea here of being emptied. And in fact, the, the contrast is clear by the word but. And it's the strongest contrast, the strongest term that you can use to draw that contrast. But! On the one hand, the equality with God is something to be desperately grasped at. But! No, no, no. He emptied Himself. And notice, it is God the Son who empties Himself. He Willingly, voluntarily empties himself. And this is where the scholars debate. I don't have time. I've I've got a worksheet that has about nine different ways that this has been understood and interpreted. But if we just stick with the text, I believe the answer comes to the to the surface here. Of what does it mean for Christ to empty himself? He emptied himself. That's the the primary verbal action here. He emptied himself. And then there are parallel statements made in the rest of the verse that further clarify what it is that is being said in in this, this verse. By taking the form of a servant. And that's dependent upon the emptied himself. And then being born in the likeness of men is also dependent upon that first emptied himself. So what's being said here? That what it means in terms of emptying himself is that he takes on the form of a servant. And he takes on human nature. Now, is it also related to things that we read about in the gospel? Absolutely. In John's gospel, the the night before he goes to the cross, one of the things that Jesus prays in John 17 and verse 5 is, uh, Father, restore to me. The glory, give me the glory that I had at the beginning. And so there is a sense in which, yes, there are certain divine privileges, prerogatives, shall we call them, that are veiled for a time during the incarnation. That when He, the Son, takes on the form of a servant, form, by the way, being the same word that was used back in verse 6 for the form of God, so he is in the form of God and also the form of man. And also in taking on the likeness of men. That when he does that, in, in the veiling process, this is part of the self-emptying of God the Son. He veils them for a time. It's not unlike, I think I've talked about it before, the sun, the, the sun in the sky and on a cloudy day, the cloud covers over that sun does that mean the sun is no longer brilliant doesn't shine anymore doesn't exist no the sun is still there it's just covered by the clouds and in a similar way when the sun takes on the form of a servant takes on and is found in the likeness of men he still retains his godhood if he was not god in the flesh atonement could not be made Forgiveness of sins could not be accomplished by his blood. Again, very clear, crystal clear, theology, Christology, doctrinal clarity in all of this. And so he does. He empties himself, takes on the form of a servant. The form of a slave, literally, is what it is in the original language. Being born in the likeness of men. Here's the incarnation. That He was born. He, God became man. He became flesh and He dwelt among us. And we see also that in the one person, Jesus Christ, we have the two natures of His deity and His humanity. His godhood and His manhood both held together in the one person and being found in human form term there for form different this time we actually get words like scheme and schematic and things like that from this this term here for form it's different and it has to do with the external appearance the outward appearance and he was a man just like others and yet he was more than a man there was more than meets the eye but he was found in human form And he humbled himself. Again, notice, it's not that he was forced to be humble or that he was humbled by someone else. He humbled himself. Again, it was the the willingness and, and the voluntary nature of Christ humbling himself. That's what's in view here. And all of this climaxes in the death. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The crucifixion is in view here. In His emptying, in His incarnation, in His becoming a servant, in His dying, even in the most ignoble way, the worst form of execution ever devised by the mind of people, in all of this is the humiliation of Christ. And He did. He humbled Himself. So He came from the highest heights of heaven, emptied Himself, took on flesh, took on human nature, and goes to the lowest depths of humiliation, even the point of death on the cross. So therefore, verse 9, since Christ was willing to condescend Through the humble emptying of himself, in service to others, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And this is the Father. He's going to talk about God the Father at the end of verse 11, as we mentioned. And it's the exaltation that follows his humiliation. After going to the utter depths of depravity, he is exalted by God. The Father exalts the Son and bestows on him the name that is above every name. What name is that? We're going to talk about how Jesus Christ is Lord in verse 11, and I believe that's it. The name is Lord. Kurios in the original language, which is uniformly the term that is used to translate in the Greek Old Testament the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, it was Kyrios, and that's the term that is used here for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not an accident. That is intentional, once again, to emphasize the full deity of Christ. He is Yahweh come in the flesh. And so that name has been bestowed on Him, the name that is above every name. He is Lord. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every Uh, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Uh, Every knee should bow. This is the universal sign of acknowledgement of the lordship of Christ. And it will come from all beings in heaven. All the angelic beings, all the hosts of heaven, will bow the knee to King Jesus, to Lord Jesus. But also on earth, all humans, and even under the earth, that would seem to be the way of talking about the dead and so the living and the dead angels demons all of them all creatures will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and every tongue will confess the name that is above all names Jesus Christ is Lord Once again this is the if bowing the knee is the external sign of acknowledging the lordship of Christ the verbal confession would be to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here's the deal. Either one, in time, even now, today, confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to their salvation, or else they will confess it at the end of time to their eternal condemnation. One way or another, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God will be glorified in that. Don't miss this, both in the salvation of Christ's people and also in the condemnation of those who are not his people. God the Father will be glorified. I'll tell you right now, that's a doctrine a lot of people don't like to hear. That God is glorified even in condemning people? Yeah, he is. Because what is he condemning? The very thing that he condemned in his son on the cross. Sin. And so long as a person remains under their sins, all that remains is the wrath of God and condemnation. To the glory of God the Father. This is the grand end of everything that God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. And this is the purpose. This is the aim for all of it. The glory of God the Father. This is the way that the early Christians sang about the humble mind of Christ. And again, Paul plugs this in here to his epistle in order to teach. Again, it's an illustration, which is, that's fascinating to me. Some talk about, well, maybe Paul was the original writer of this hymn. Possibly, we don't know. But regardless, this is what the early Christians believed. And it informs, first of all, the mind that we are to have and how that manifests in actions towards others. As we back up here to verses 1 through 4, Paul is saying that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This one mind is something we've come across earlier, back in verse 27 of chapter 1. Remember, we talked about this last week. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What is this one mind business? It is the single-minded, humble devotion of every Christian to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the one mind business. Now, a couple of weeks ago on a Monday night broadcast over on the Facebook page, I talked about an article that was making the rounds then that was written by a pastor about what our faith exempts us from, and it was about the the vaccines. And it was this text right here, specifically verses 3 and 4, that that pastor cited in order to essentially say either you get the vaccine or you're a bad Christian. Net-net, that's what the argument was. And it ignored all the context. It was ripped from its context, and, and and forced to service in the weaponization of faith against other Christians. May I just ask, was that Paul's intention? Was that the one mind that he had about masks or vaccines or fill in the blank? What were they arguing about in their day? Meat and days and all that. Go read Romans 14 again. No, this is not a proper application of these verses. The one mind concerns the one faith that's been delivered unto the saints. And I'll invite you, as I had a lot more to say, and I worked through the entire article and I believe answered the argument. Uh, If you are interested in that, go and watch the full video. It's available on Facebook. But suffice it to say, Christ, you remember this, and again, just in their context, with specifically the meat, and eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, Christ had declared all foods clean. Go read Mark chapter 7 again. He had declared all foods clean. And yet, Christ also honored the faith of those Christians, his people who still had qualms in their personal faith about eating the meat sacrificed to idols. They were still his people. And so the humble mind, yes, we do count others more significant than ourselves. Yes, we do look to not only our own interests, but the interests of others. But again, to weaponize this, I don't think is a proper application. So then, what about the next section here, verses 12 through 13? And how does this humble mind connect our salvation Because that's what's in view here. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only uh, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, By the way, the term "their own, is supplied in many English translations. And it just says, actually what it says is, your salvation, not your own. And that's, I think, a, a holdover for our Western idea of a personalization of this. It does have personal application, but it's spoken in the context of the church. Y'all's salvation, all y'all's salvation. You're supposed to be working out together with one another. That's the emphasis here, with fear and trembling. For don't miss this, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now remember, we've already talked about 1 verse 6, where Paul emphasized that God is the one who began a good work, in each Christian, and he will bring it to completion. And now here is the emphasis on God outworking that salvation in each one of us, but specifically also in the church. Your salvation, the church, the body of Christ, together, the whole congregation, with fearful, reverential trembling. As we live before the presence of God, we are to work out our salvation. And so there is the human responsibility aspect of this, that we are responsible to God for how we live, move, and have our being in this world. And then Paul turns right around and emphasizes the divine sovereignty aspect of this. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And this is a statement which is parallel with the glory of God the Father at the end of verse 11. What is it God is up to? why does he do everything that he does and it's connected to his glory and it's connected to his good pleasure and for the sanctified heart that is more than enough because it really is all about him and so god he he does he gifts us salvation but then he also gives us the means and even the will itself in order to put that gift into practice to put that faith into practice Christ's work as we talked about is complete. On the cross he said it is finished. And so this is talking about the sanctification process that is accomplished within us. That God he he gives us the power and that and then we we lean into that power with all that's within us. We act through his power that he gives us. God gives us the power to will. And then we do. We act according to that will. He provides for us. The humble mind then acknowledges, well, what Jonah acknowledged salvation is of the Lord, salvation is of God. But then it also acknowledges we need one another in order to work out our salvation. One more thing verses 14 through 16. Paul continues to talk about our holiness. He talks about do all things without grumbling or complaining. And there's a whole sermon in that one verse, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and genera- crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are to shine as lights, but understand, we don't shine our own light. Our, our light is derived from the light of the world, capital L, Jesus. We are merely moons reflecting the light of the sun, as it were. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, that seems to be the end of time, as we've talked about before in Philippians, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here's the thing we do live, we continue to live, just as they did in in their day. We live also in a crooked and twisted generation. We live among a people of unclean lips. Uh, an unclean people. We live in a world that lies under the power of the evil one, as John says. And so what is essential is that we seek according to the will of God and according to all the strength that He supplies within us. We seek to be blameless and innocent. This is again holiness, but it's a it's an acknowledgement that our holiness is not because of ourselves. Just like the light within us is derived, so the holiness that we have is also derived from the holiness of Christ, from the holiness of God. And the humble mind again acknowledges that's from God too. And that is enough. That is enough. We have, as it were, excavated the column, we've excavated the foundation. And it runs very deep. The Lord Jesus Christ and who He is as both the God, as as the God-man, as both God and human. We see His humiliation. We also see His exaltation. And that informs similarly the Christian's humble mind. How we acknowledge that in this world we, we are humble and we will be humiliated. Hated on by the crooked and twisted generation. And yet, just as our Lord was exalted, we look forward to our exaltation with Him. Our final union with Him in the day of Christ. And so it's no wonder that part of this is, you know what, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Christ went to the cross And he never grumbled, never complained. He, what is it the writer of Hebrews says? He despised the shame. And for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And in a similar way, that is instructive for us as well. That is the mind that we are to think. The mind that we are to continue to think, to keep on thinking. This mind that was in Christ Jesus. Let us commit this to prayer. word is so deep, Father. And the depths of the deity and the humanity of Christ are staggering to our minds. And yet as we acknowledge the humble way of Christ, we recognize that is our way as well. And we pray that we would think this mind of humility That we would utilize and lean into this mind as we think about others and how we treat especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would aim together to work out our mutual salvation with one another. And that we would seek to live holy lives in this world. We pray all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen.